Welcome, everyone. <clears throat> I'm just switching my screen so I can see everybody. Make sure I don't miss anyone's face. When more people will be arriving. Uh, let's enjoy uh, sitting together for a few minutes. To sit zazen together, 
is quite remarkable. And oddly, it's quite remarkable because it's so unremarkable. Our sitting in upright stillness and silence, presence, is not the enactment of an instrumental activity. We're not sitting so something will happen next. We're not meditating to become more calm, to be more insightful, to change some aspect of our personality or a character, which is difficult. Those things might happen. We're sitting to meet our life exactly as it is, and that takes a good bit of courage. And it's difficult to, <laughs> difficult to sell because it doesn't offer something shiny and bright and new. It offers you back to your life. And as we sit together, we offer ourselves to each other and for each other. But it's not very dramatic. It's very simple and immensely powerful. But your dedication and willingness to offer yourself to this sitting and to offer yourselves to each other in this sitting is a radical and powerful generosity.
vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. I just had an idea that for the the next time um, we do the these chants, since we do them three times, um, if we have a time when, uh, uh, for example, um, uh, Claudine or Sophie or someone is here, you could, they could do one of the times in French, and then if um, uh, Sandra or somebody else wants to, we could do one of them in Spanish, because we have the translations, you know, it'd be lovely, or uh, Nelly uh, could do either. <laughs> we could have somebody do them in uh, each, of, each of these languages, it'd be lovely to hear them that way. So, which brings me to Netflix. <laughs> the reason, <laughs> or Amazon, uh, subtitles. Um, I don't know about most of you, uh, but we've been watching uh, during the pandemic a, a lot of the you know series on various streaming sources. And you know, when you have been watching a series, when you go to the next episode, there's the recap where it, it kind of catches you up in case you didn't see or reminds you of what's happened last time. And usually we hit the little skip button. You know, there's a little thing that says you can skip the, the recap. Anyway, you know, being a Dharma teacher means you're endlessly recapping and repeating the same series over and over and over. Um, but what you can't skip with your remote is the way the teachings sometimes get under your skin and stay with you. How the teachings have a life of their own after a while as you begin to realize them actually as your life, not stories from some other time. And there is one of these stories, there's a, one of the koans that I spoke about last time um, from the book of uh, Serenity, Case 21, about Yunyan sweeping the ground and Dawu, his, his brother. It's still working on me. Uh, one that Josh had, had brought up in the, the retreat at, in the UK and so I want to, this is the recap, because some of you weren't here either in that retreat or last week when I spoke about it. So I'm going to give you a slight recap. Um, and then we're going to, we're going to go further to the next episode. 
So the recap, for those of you that didn't, uh, didn't hear the koan, Yunyan and Daogu are Dharma buddies. Yunyan's busy sweeping in the garden. And Daowu, one of his fellow monks, comes up and says to him, hmm, very busy, You're very busy. And Yunyan looked up and said, well, you should know that there's one who is not busy. And, and now they're in it, you know. And Daowu says, well, in that case, there are two moons in the sky. And Yunyan holds up his broom and says, well, which moon is this? And Daowu's silent. So that's, that's the little vignette, that's the story that we spoke about last time. So remember, Dawu, the one who started the whole thing, challenges his buddy by commenting on how busy Yunyan is. How many of us, you know, are busy all the time? And Yunyan, he doesn't say he's not busy. He admits, yeah, I'm working here. But there is one who is not busy. Then Dawu takes that and says, there's something wrong with this picture because now you're separating your ordinary self, the busy one, from their true self, which isn't busy. And so now you've made two moons in the sky. And Yunyan hangs in there, you know, and he holds up the rune and says, okay, which self is this? Which moon is this? And he, this, this is what I think he's saying. He's saying, come on, seriously, you wanna play this game? I'm not going to be so easily trapped into this dualistic dichotomy of, oh, it's this or it's that. He's saying with the broom, it is just this, all of this, all the time, and we both know it. That's the part that he does, and we both know it. Come on, come on. We both know that there's only one great reality, one ever-changing, contingent flow of life. And this is the repeating plot line of the series. It's just this. So when Dawu starts off by commenting on one side, the busy side, and Yunyan gives him the other side, not busy, then Yunyan reminds him, you know, this is, this is just one thing. We're talking about it from these two places. And you can comment on either view, and that's not wrong, but don't get stuck there. Even in the midst of everyday activity like sweeping, Buddha's manifesting. And my point from the last episode is that our practice isn't about uncovering a hidden true self. Just like when I mentioned in Zazen, we're not meditating to achieve something. But our practice isn't about uncovering some hidden thing. So much is it about discovering the truth of this, which is already here, which we already have, which we're already manifesting, this, we call it a self, because it feels like that to us, which is impermanent and contingently created over and over in some habitual ways, which we can work with if we need, but, and that self, which we might call our true self, is in plain sight if we know how to look. So here's another story. This is the next episode here. Of another pair. And it's a story that many of you have heard, but now there's a unique context. And this is the story of a dying brother, dying of AIDS, and his poet, Big Sister. 
and it points to a Dharma gate, just like Yunyana Dalu. The name, the title of the poem, which is quite short, is called The Gate. The big sister is Marie Howe, and her younger brother is dying of AIDS. <clears throat> and this is the poem she wrote. She said, I had no idea. I had no idea that the gate I would step through to finally enter this world would be the space my brother's body made. He was a little taller than me, a young man, but grown him, himself by then, done at 28, having folded every sheet, rinsed every glass he would ever rinse under the cold and running water. This is what you've been waiting for, he used to say to me. And I'd say, what? And he'd say this, holding up his cheese and mustard sandwich. And I would say, what? And he would say, this, sort of looking around. Like Yunyan, he's saying to his big sister, as he's, he knows he's coming to the end of his life, you know, it's just this, all of this, and we both know it. Everything belongs, and it's all right here. He's saying, this is what you've been waiting for, he says to her. This, not something to come. This, this is what you've been waiting for, to finally realize this. I repeated the old Zen language last time <clears throat> for the same kind of teaching. You're looking for an ox while riding it. Stop looking for the ox you're looking for and bring forth the ox you're riding. Josh said very clearly, you know, you're looking for a life while living it. Stop looking for the life you're looking for and bring forth the life you're living. And in Thanksgiving, I was suggesting that you're looking for gratitude while being nourished by it. Stop looking for something to be grateful for and bring forth gratitude, which is all around you. Stop looking for something that you're going to give thanks for. Stop looking for something to give thanks for in your life and bring forth gratitude as the way you live your life. And these, this is all well and good when you're, you know, talking about some old Zen story which is conceptual or um, philosophical, and, and you understand it. They all have to do with these warm expressions of gratitude, but what if it's none of these? What if it's your loved one dying? And you have your own list. What, how do we go deeper with this kind of realization? And this is really the next episode. And here's the first story which I used in the Madison retreat. <clears throat> Bob Rosenbaum is a very good friend of mine, a PhD psychologist, a neuropsychologist, and um, a Zen teacher who was entrusted by Sojin Mel Weissman. And Bob is also a, um, a, a teacher of Qigong and yoga. And 
he decided um, some decades ago to come to the Berkeley Zen Center to begin to practice, but he had this long um, training in psychology and psychotherapy and in yoga and Qigong. And so uh, I met Bob in the late 90s when I was practicing in San Francisco and at Berkeley. And uh, Blanche had suggested that I spend more time with Sojin uh, when I began my priest training, he, she said, cultivate your relationship with him. And we'd been in Japan together, so we had we'd gotten close there. So here's how the story unfolds. Um, and Bob writes this story in his new book on the Surangama Sutra. Um, so I, I gave you the reference to it. Um, but anyway, he signed up for his first Shashen. It was the first time he's going to do a Zen retreat at the Berkeley Zen Center. He says, with the expectation of having a relaxing week of meditation. Of course, that was not his experience. And it's a, it's a longer story, but here's the part of his words that I actually ex excerpted from his book. Each day was more painful physically than the last. Despite my attempts to soothe my aching body with yoga during rest periods. Each session of Zazen was more devastating emotionally than the last, despite my attempts to calm my aching mind with psychological inquiry and coping techniques. I was tossed by waves of intense sadness, unalloyed by any thought or ideas I could grab hold of. I felt desolate, grief-stricken, embarrassed by what I thought must be the inadequacy of my meditation technique angry at a Zen practice that promised enlightenment and brought misery. I cried and cried without knowing why. And this continued through all five days of the Shishan. On the last day, we had a closing Shosan ceremony. One by one, each of us were given a chance to stand up, go to the center of the meditation hall, to face the teacher, Sojin, Mel Weissman, and ask a question from the depth of our heart. Sojin would make a terse reply, aiming to direct us to the fundamental point of our personal practice at the moment. This is part of the foundation of inquiry, by the way. When my turn came, I told Sojin how I'd come to Sashin feeling wonderful and had plunged immediately into misery. I described my pain, my sadness, and my frustration at having no idea what or why this was happening. Tearfully, and in anguish, I asked him, what is this? What is this? Sojin paused, met my gaze, and answered me directly with one word, Nirvana. At that moment, something crept open within me, he says. I knew with complete certainty that Sojin was right. I didn't understand it. Yet somehow I knew, yes, this is Nirvana. And that story cracked me open when I read it. And, and, and knowing Bob as I do, it felt personal. Now it's closer. And in a consultation group with wonderful uh, younger therapists that, that I do, I, I read this and talked about this story. 
And one of the wonderful therapists, who's also a Dharma teacher, she said, you know, that reminds me of another story. One of my good friends, who was a longtime student of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche when he was alive, was doing a, a long retreat in, in the Tibetan tradition and was having difficulties like, like Bob described, the, the kind of difficulties we face in long retreats, because we're going to meet everything. Not because it's hard or sadistic or mean, it's because when we stop turning away, we meet everything that we've been retreating from. So this young woman went to Trungpa and asked some similar questions. And, and they were talking about, in the Tibetan tradition, the sort of promise of bliss um, in the opening, in awakening. And she says, what is bliss? What is it? And he said kindly, I think for you, it would probably feel like pain. So these two stories are quite counterintuitive, but they are echoing. It's just this, and we both know it. It's all of this. Nirvana, the bliss of, is all of this. It's everything. And these teachers are saying, and I sincerely hope you can realize this all the way down into your bones beyond ordinary preferences for feeling good or not feeling good, for busy or at ease, for happy or distressed, for right or wrong, for pain or no pain. You know, when we read in Dogen, his essential teaching that he got from Rujing, that awakening is dropping, uh, body and mind dropping away. It sounds strange. Of course we have our body and of course we have our mind. But what's dropping away? And no trace of realization. What's dropping away is all of the ideas we have about how it should be, could be, we wish it. So when we sit in stillness and silence and uprightness in Zazen, we're enacting stopping and settling and sitting in the midst of all of it. opening in a nirvanic moment, maybe, when all of our attempts to escape or improve drop away. Even when they're there, we sit with them without engaging and indulging them. Or even if they take over, there's a part of us that's watching and knowing. When we're not caught in conditioning for a moment is a nirvanic moment. when our demands that things be a certain way soften. But even that's a little tricky because it indulges our idea that we're gonna get something, and it's gonna be better. We're finally gonna be free, opening to the fullness of life, allowing life force, which is intent, life energy to flow fully through us, becoming the container or a channel for the embodied, embodied immediacy of life energy. <clears throat> that's already manifesting, rather than looking for some other life that we're searching for, some curative fantasy that this bliss, this bliss is all of that energy, everything that life brings, 
not our special order list. This is their nirvanic moments. These are the, this is the bliss that these two teachers are talking about. And this is not the way we think about it. But it explodes and opens the possibility when Sojin says to Bob as his difficulties, said, this is nirvana. This is the wholeness, the fullness of life. In the Theravadan tradition and the old traditions, the word that's translated as nirvana means cessation. Uh, like putting out a fire, like when you're thirsty and you drink water and you're soothed. That was the image that the Buddha actually used. There is something that is soothing about our suffering in practicing. But what's soothed isn't our experience. The word for the fuel that keeps the fire burning and the word for clinging in Sanskrit is the same word, upadana. The fuel for the pain and suffering is clinging. And we think it's our experience of not feeling happy. Nirvana and samsara aren't a place. And if you were attain nirvana, you don't escape the other one. For the Buddha, samsara is the process by which clinging gives rise to suffering, which in turn, because we suffer, gives rise to more clinging. I want out of this. And our spiritual practice becomes a new form of clinging. What if we're able to feel everything, <clears throat> sitting in the midst of everything, confessing and avowing it all? We come to know nirvana as this wholeness and completeness of each moment, unclouded by longing and clinging for something different and better, even when we do things which are wholesome to make our life better. The bliss of each moment is in its fulfillment. And for most of us, in which clinging is still alive, it feels like pain. We don't experience it as pleasure, this bliss, or nirvana, even as the life we're living is manifesting freely and fully. The Tibetan teachers, Theravadan teacher says it's the cessation. Tibetan teachers say it's all divine. The universe itself is the Buddha's this is like paradise and everything's a deity. And it, it's in this unique outlook is the ultimate truth, not just of emptiness, but of all pervading sacredness. These are just different views. Even the thought about Nirvana is usually the ego's attempt to jeopardize the entry. And that's what, you know, Marie's brother is saying, no, she said, I finally entered my life by the space my brother's body made as he dropped it and said, this is it, girl, this is what you've been waiting for. And it requires the dropping of everything 
that one is shamelessly trying to hold on to all the time. And it means a spiritual death in a way, dying to the illusion of a self that you're going to finally get fixed up. And this awakened state or this kind of nirvana or bliss, whatever the, the Tibetans talk about is endowed with wisdom and love. It's ecstatic. It's the great bliss they talk about. But that can create an illusion, like it's going to feel good. I was reading something uh, really quickly from Tulku Tupkin Rinpoche. He said, <clears throat> let's see, it has nothing, bliss, he said, nothing to do with ordinary bliss that we experience through our senses, like taking drugs or having sex. It's not necessarily some titillating or altered state of mind that inspires you to frolic in the meadows. <laughs> I love that. Otherwise, hedonism and self-indulgence would be a shortcut to enlightenment. He said the Vajrayana position is to counter the dry notion that nirvana is a dead end, the terminus of every experience from sorrow, and it would turn into bliss. The Vajrayana doctrine regards it as a pseudo-nirvana, which is nothing more than a pain-free vegetative state. He said it defines awakening as a state that's not only free from sorrow, but it's the embodiment of transcendent love, wisdom, and ecstasy. So there's a quenching of the fire of clinging. There's the realization of everything as sacred in the Vajrayana tradition. And then in the Zen tradition, these are just different points of view. We discover that it's all here now. And with strong determination, you go to a session and you say, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to shut up. I'm sick and tired of this endless round of confusion and fear. I'm going to resolve to enter this clear, awaken my, this, I'm going to, finally stop so that true compassion can begin to flower and bloom in my very begin in my very being and all of this is nirvana when all of our attempts to escape or improve drop away and the bliss of bringing forth the life we have rather than one we're looking for we're searching for is full of everything that life is once again, without our special order list, those nirvanic moments, just moments when we feel the freedom of not being caught when we're still in the midst of everything. So as I said, this episode was going to be pushing further, deeper into this understanding. So what is it called forward in you? What are the questions, concerns? What are the edges that this brings forward? And if there are those that are here that you want to uh, to meet, please bring them forward. You know, the, the Shosan ceremony, the public uh, ceremony that's done in those formal uh, Zen retreats is, is one of the foundations of inquiry, like I said. It's part of what we're doing. But it also meets uh, Dokusan, the other private meeting, with the teacher, but brings it in, in front of others so everybody gets to share. And these things open between us. This is nirvana. This is bliss. Well, last night I had a three moon night. You did? <laughs> I did. Uh, which was actually, and, and it it was just an amazing experience that happened in relationship to it, 
chances are, I mean, I quite suspect that it's that it's uh, about cataracts. Um, but uh, I saw them clearly as three moons that were one of them was white and small and one of them was large and and orangish and and another one seemed not quite there, but I could almost see it fully, you know, and I mean, I enjoyed the three moons just watching them and it set me off in a, a way of thinking in terms of how very much of what we call reality is essentially what our culture defines is like, okay, we have this kind of eyesight, most of us, and we see it as this. And that's true of our inner life and outer life, uh, you know, the, and, and that every single thing can have many, many possible ways of looking at. And that's one of the things I've really come to appreciate the uh, teacher, the teacher that aging and, and health issues uh, bring forward is that it, it's like an endless source of curiosity. Um, and it's, it's, um, it shows us very many other things. If, if we, if we, when I'm able to, when I am able to bring, bring, my my pain, my fear, my mixed upness, all of those things, and and sit with it, and and let let the dharma come in when when I'm able to really hear, feel it, um, and that I don't know where I'm going. This is the refining of your Dharma eye. And it's enjoyable when you see it with the uh, old eyes that we see. There's a, a, a Dogen said, we see only as far as our eye of practice can reach. Mm -hmm. So we continue to practice. And there's this will take us on another stream, so I don't want to go there, but I'll say there's another beautiful poem uh, called Monet Refuses the Operation. And it's about... Uh, mm -hmm. Monet is saying, I don't want the cataract surgery. It's taken me my whole life to see that the the light posts in Paris are, you know, like angels. And so enjoy the aging, but let it take you deeper into your Dharma eye. Yes. And and that's the gift as yes. everything else falls apart. Because yes. it was <laughs> it's it, it, you know, it's like people say, you know, let your body fall aside, you know, in, in terms of, of how we talk about it, um, it's going to anyway. <laughs> and and if you can if you can notice them while they're in the moment and and it yeah. Thank you. I mean right. yeah. It's good to see you again. It's been a while. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Flynn. Well, hey, that was a great recap. 
you know, and I hate to read camps and I smile because if I were, you know, when I think sometimes of how I were to convey this practice to others, it just sounds like, wait a minute, didn't you tell me that before? But it's so true that the teachings um, become your life and you're always, they're there. That's the point. And so, you know, I've got your voice and your image in my nervous system and the poems and, uh, and Lisa, you know, I, in- I, have, I have your voice and your stories in me. Oh, I never thought of that. In fact, I used one of your stories in the last retreat I taught. Wow. The one you wrote up for us in the koan class, the one about turning toward your brother when you were actually not conscious. Mm-hmm. And so you, it doesn't just go one way. You're in me, I'm in you. I forget that sometimes. And that's, that's, part of the, that's part of the bliss. That's part of the nirvanic space that we open. And then we realize, oh, we're not separate, are we? Mm. So what brought me forward specifically is uh, it's dissatisfaction, longing, and clinging, and it's something I feel really embarrassed about. And of course, that's part of the problem, right? It's like my little Eddie that's like a little dynamo Eddie. I mean, since early childhood, truly, maybe when I was six, I mean, I've had this, there's this poem, that I don't remember who it is, Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, about a child being up, uh, up in the air so high. And, you know, it's better than anything. And I felt that way. I felt, I felt so much joy and awe at nature. And yet at the same time, I wondered, I felt miserable and sick. I mean, I was quite depressed and desperate as a child, as a matter of fact, until just maybe the last couple of years um, at various levels. And so, you know, my career has been, my career has been with that small child to find out, well, you know, now I'm talking about it, maybe to unblock that whatever is between me and, you know, my conditioning, it's like, oh, I know this and yet I'm miserable. And that doesn't make sense. And then there's another piece of it going here. You know, it's like the clinging, the dissatisfaction and the failure to accept, you know, and that Hey, acceptance is the difference between heaven and hell. So, you know, I've got these really weird processing issues. <laughs> you, have, so you have you have a tremendous amount of insight about all these things. And you, well, and you, can, you, you, can, and you can lay out, but you keep doing this as you talk. <laughs> so what is what that? just as a practice is without trying to sort through all those things, and try to fix one and help you're in touch with that child you're in touch with all the different parts of you hold them all together 
instead of just trying to sort through them? Oh, it's really hard. And that's exactly what I'm doing. And I'm sorting through them. And another piece of it is, you know, it's very frustrating for people to say to me how much they appreciate my intelligence. This is part of it. And yet I can't do, you know, I haven't been able to do what I need to do. That's basic things. And you know, earning a livelihood and being part of a sauna. There's things I look like I should be able to do, but I can't do them. And um, so I keep working on expanding those. And so another little thing, an accretion that has added to this is, whoa, you know, I'm a calm, calmer, stabler, you know, wiser person. And yet um, it's like, oh, some of the things like being able to make wise investments, for example, because I can't focus. It's like, oh, what about things and other things? They impact my children. I don't mind. Okay, this is the game. Well, I don't mind for myself. I want to to stop the game. Stop. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, oh, it's never going to change. You're always going to be this way. Damn. Meaning you're always going to be all of this fullness. There are things you do beautifully, things you won't be able to do. It'll have impact on other people, have impact on you. This is what you're going to be navigating with all the people who love you and all the people who are with you. This is your life. This is the ox you're riding. This is the one you have. And I've known you for a very long time. And I've seen you make big changes. And I've seen you continue to go deeper and deeper and deeper into accepting the life you have. And it has really helped you. And right now, there's some sort of energy that's spinning in you, like there's something you're wanting. And it sounds like there's something you want is like some sort of magic that it will be different. Yeah, I think that's it. What, but what's happening between you and me right now, there's actually nothing missing, is there? This is okay. No. And all these people are watching and listening and realize, hey, you know, it's a miracle that you're alive and that you can do what you can do. And it's quirky and funny and difficult and all the things that it is, just like it is for everyone's life. And you're you're welcomed into this life like you are. That's the peace. I just want to accept myself. That's it. That's it. That's it right there. That's what I'm saying. Just hold it. Don't keep sorting through it. Just hold it. Will you do that? With those hands that reached out and touched your brother and then you turned toward life when you could have not. Yeah, if I accept it, it's never going to change. <laughs> if I don't accept it, I can have the fantasy. You're always you know? going to be you. Things will change. You're always going to be you. Enjoy it. Uh, a lot is moving. Good. Stay there. Okay? Stay there. With what's moving there. Thank you. Gotcha.
Yes. Hi. Thanks. It's my first time, so I'm a little bit nervous. Um, I've seen your name though before, right? Yes. Yeah. With uh, Awakening Together in the Twin Cities. So um, I wanted to talk about pain in practice. And um, I went on my first retreat um, in a Buddhist um, monastery a couple weeks ago. And it felt like I came home and I said, it felt like pain and discomfort was the point of the whole weekend. It was... <laughs> It was freezing cold and and I'm an ice water swimmer, so I don't, you know, it was freezing cold. Um, I hadn't sat that long. We did five and a half hours of sitting and I had a hip injury. And so I was just incredibly um, struggling with my preference to not have my hip hurt and trying to sit properly and not distract the people around me by moving too much to try to lessen the discomfort. And so I'm I'm struggling a little bit with that, like, is the pain the point in sitting? And it felt like inviting more pain and suffering when I already have other issues going on. And then I was reading Love and Rage by Lama Rod Owens. And um, yeah, Love and Rage. And he was saying, like, if you need to lay down, if it if it hurts and you need to adjust, that the pain can be a distraction. And to me, that extra hip pain and the fact that we couldn't wear socks or hats and it was like 50 degrees Fahrenheit, it felt like the pain, all of it felt like a distraction. And then I was mad that it was a distraction. And I also, though, came out of that weekend so grateful for you and this community and my sangha. So I wanted to say thank you. And my preference that you, like, this doesn't feel like a loving and kind Flint retreat. <laughs> this feels like it's like dour and just pain. And so can you talk a bit more about pain and particularly around sitting and practice? And can I can I move if my hip hurts? And, you know, anyway, so and I when I brought it up in discussion group, it was sort of like, well, everyone's in pain. And I'm so I'm like, OK, well, <laughs> but do I just sit there like hoping this session ends or this zazen ends so I can get up and stretch my hip and anyway so I'll just leave it at that yeah you're 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 coming to me a little bit like Bob did in that story what the hell yeah that's why I, I was like yes <laughs> that's right and part of it sounds like what you found yourself immersed in was a, a classical Asian monastic situation yeah. Uh, and this is just a side note, those monasteries that came out of China and Japan a thousand years ago and 500 years ago and a couple were basically designed to train adolescent boys. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a little more like military, you know, it's a little harsh. So let's just put that aside for a moment uh, and get back to the deeper question that you're asking. I don't necessarily think um, we need to add pain we all have plenty. Uh, I also think that there are ways that the forms that we engage in in a long retreat help us stop the ways we avoid meeting ourselves and the pain that we carry. So if you have a hip injury, I say, you know, sit in a chair or do what you need, not as a way to constantly negotiate trying to feel comfortable because that be, you begin to notice your conditioning, but also not indulge just like gritting it out and bearing up. That doesn't help either. 
what's the what's the middle way where there's a wholesome willingness to stay a story that many people have heard which you may not have heard because you haven't been around me that long was when i was in japan with with sojin and with my teacher blanche i went and, and asked her a question like this one morning early and we were sitting together in practice discussion and i said this practice is supposed to help us you know relieve suffering but so why do we do these things that hurt so much and she said because we're practicing to know how to work with the pain that doesn't stop when the bell rings that doesn't answer the whole question but it basically says yeah what we're learning about is how to meet sensation and discomfort and struggles whether it's physical or emotional or you know mental uh that's not going to stop just because we get to get up and we're going to learn something as we sit there another one of my teachers once said you know how the pain moves around like it's in your knee for a while but then it's your back and then the next session you don't feel so much pain then another one you're in agony it's not in some ways like your pain it's the pain and it's your karma not punishment that's not what it is it's what your body is what it's become by the way you've lived it it's just it's not it's not something telling you you've done something wrong and it's not a punishment it's like oh this is the way my hip is given the way i've been and the way i've lived my life and injuries that have happened so how do i meet this and you want to meet it in a wholesome and good way so there are many approaches to pain i have found that the retreats that i went to where i felt pretty much at ease and there wasn't too much going on i had a hard time staying awake and the retreats when things when i was really meeting the things that i carry every day which i don't even notice are difficult the retreat may not be very pleasant but my life opens up the fruit of the practice doesn't happen on the cushion the fruit of the practice happens in your life and that's one of the reasons we sit with each other and we sit close by and we engage in the forums together because we have to help each other continue sitting because it is uncomfortable the point isn't to make you hurt the point is when we sit down and stop every the way we uh, retreat from our life sometimes it feels uncomfortable and how to work with those sensations is a whole nother another thing and it's not useful i don't think to sit in ways to make you feel bad or just to put up with it that that just it's a whole nother thing but am i touching on some of the things that mm -hmm. yeah. yeah this is something we have to constantly negotiate uh and the secret hope is that if we just practice well there'll be no pain but we keep being reminded of the first noble truth if you have a conditioned body there's going to be some discomfort and dissatisfaction because it's not going to be the way you want it to be there's also going to be a whole lot of other and to open a space in which all of it can move and all of it belongs and all of it is workable workable not just endurable that's the nirvanic space and the bliss of plunging into our life and accepting it fully and with some grace even when it's difficult and struggling is the bliss that's beyond pleasure and this is something that I can talk about forever and doesn't make any sense until we practice our way into that space but we need to talk about it and i have to repeat the episode over and over and over as we uh, 
care for each other along this path. Is there something remaining that you wanted to also say based on what I've said? No, um, I mean, I, you know, I'm 50 this year and I think as aches and pains are sticking around longer, um, th this practice has been really helpful and, um, you know, I had a frozen shoulder for a year and a half with just constant pain and, and it, this was very, the practice was very helpful for that. Um, and, you know, it's interesting when I got the, the finally got an injection, um, and immediately started to improve and I just started weeping and in the you know the doctor's office I think he looked at me a little strange and and the relief of not having the pain so it, it's something I'll have to sort of chew on because because I definitely preferred not having it to having it the practice was very helpful um and then there was a release when there was a relief of the pain but um anyway it's but I think I think for me, the point is if I'm sitting and it's causing more pain, I can find a different way to sit or, or maybe lay down or it, it, it just was a little confusing that it felt like the pain was the point. And it was like, now work with your preferences with this, this pain. And anyway, so yeah, uh, there, there are some points in there that make some sense, but it's, I don't necessarily think it's a wholesome practice uh, to just to push yourself in that direction, because it also um, helps makes people not want to practice. You know, when that's, it's not necessary to do that. One of the people I learned the most about this from was Darlene Cohen, who's a good friend of mine and a priest at San Francisco Zen Center. And she had crippling rheumatoid arthritis and she could not be out of pain. And uh, there was a certain ways that she walked and sat and so that she could do her best. I actually asked her one time because her feet were so bad. I said, how is it that you do walking meditation? She said, I focus on the foot that's in the air. It doesn't hurt when it's lifted. So there, and there are many, many things we can continue with on this. This is important. Thank you for coming forward and thank you for the courage. So let's uh, invoke our four practice principles, which um, point us to the container of each nirvanic moment and each flow of bliss. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Thank you so much, everyone. Jessica. Alpamata's programs and facilities are support uh, supported through your generosity and 
everything that you do makes a huge difference. So thank you for those who came forward today and um, for the contributions that you make in all the ways that you do. So I've placed um, a link in the chat. You can make a monetary contribution on the website um, or fill out the form if you'd like for it to go directly for Flint or um, our other teachers. And um, feel free to stay around now if you have time. We'll be joining uh, Rosemary on the porch. Thanks, everyone.